I started trading tapes a few years later. So when I was 12 years old, I started trading tapes and my friends, I, I was asking them to send me things and, and, you know, I would occasionally buy tapes, 10, $15 a pop. I did the HTML for John McAdam in exchange for tapes. And John had a very extensive collection. So I got a lot of stuff from him. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling podcast where we mainly focus on classic pro wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're actually going to expand upon that time frame a little bit maybe during this podcast. But before we get rolling, I want to uh, thank everyone for listening. I want to uh, let you know that um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, just put in the search for John McAdam and follow the guy with the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. Uh, I also want to share some really good news with everyone in the Stick to Wrestling universe. This week, I got a really good deal on a Christmas tree. The, the pine needles are start, kind of starting to fall off, but Christmas 2024, I am kind of all set tree-wise. And with that, I want to bring on our usual, sometimes semi-regular co-host, Steve Generelli. Steve, happy 2024. Well, same to you, John, and, and uh, thank you to all our listeners for all the positive feedback about our 1984 uh, look back on uh, the national expansion. I'm glad everybody's enjoying that, and I wanted to say that in the Facebook group, we've had some nice uh, conversations going with uh, SK Lee started one today about uh, listing all the top draws for every promotion. Craig Arroyo asked if Jerry Lawler would have been a good NWA champ. And John, what do you think about that back in the 70s? I think I, I don't think he would have ever been the best choice. Now, I actually didn't say that on Facebook. I actually answered the question in kind of a, a vacuum. But would he have been a good NWA champion? Yes, absolutely. Now, some people might say, well, he you know, he was lacking size. It doesn't matter. Jerry Lawler has been a success everywhere he's gone in wrestling, and there's a reason for it. He can talk you in the building. And not only that, but our good friend Bo James pointed out that he could make anyone look like a potential world, world champion. Yeah, that's a great answer, and I, I, I agree. Uh, whether it would have happened, I don't know. But uh, And we also has a really nice uh, thread started by uh, Steve Walker, who had a great question. He asked, who are the three people most influential to Vince McMahon's success? And I really like the answer that Joey Harris gave, where he answered that the three people were Jim Barnett, Gorilla Monsoon, and Pat Patterson. I thought that really nailed it. I think that pretty that nails it down. I'm not Jim Barnett. I might find someone else, but I'm not sure. I mean, I think that's a really good answer, Steve. Not to keep going on and on and on about the WWF in January of 1984, but I wanted to throw this in. I mean, Sheik wins the title December 26, 1983. Hulk Hogan wins the title January 23rd, 1984. What a weird three weeks that was. And I just want to tell you guys why really quickly. The WWF had a pattern, okay? When when Buddy Rogers was named the champion, everyone knew who Buddy Rogers was. Then Bruno won it. Everyone knew who Bruno was. Uh, Koloff, he's an interim. It doesn't matter, and everyone knows who he was anyway. Uh, Everyone knew who Pedro was when he won the title. Then it goes back to Bruno, you know, obviously. 
Then it goes to superstar Billy Graham, who had a huge run in the WWF less than a year before. Everyone knew who he was. Bob Backlund was in the WWF for well over a year before he finally got the title. We knew who Bob was. Then the sheet comes out of nowhere. He hadn't been in the WWF since early 1980. I, As you all know from the last two or three podcasts, I, I did not take him seriously as a challenger. And all of a sudden, this guy comes out of nowhere and wins. And then Hulk Hogan, who had been on television like three weeks, wins the title. And looking back, of course, I should have seen it coming, Steve. But, you know, coming in, this was, you know, it all blew my mind. It was a weird four weeks. Yeah, it it really changed everything, and and as you like to say, you know, they were already doing huge business in '83 with the old formula, the old ways of doing things, and Bob Backlund on top. But it, you know, his his business and his history would you know play out. Uh, obviously, the fans really uh, liked this new Hulk Hogan guy, uh, whether they liked him or knew knew about him or not, and they really got accustomed to him quite quickly. And Vince had all kinds of things up his sleeve with Cindy Lauper and uh, all the newcomers coming into the Federation, and we'll talk a lot about that in the weeks and months to come. We sure will. You know, I wanted to throw one other thing too. Right away in 1984, there was a big change in the Boston uh, television. It used to be they would have two matches and. And then they would have a block of interviews about the upcoming Boston Garden show. And then they'd show three more matches. Now, New York, they would show the interviews continuously. You'd have a match. Then you'd have an interview about, you know, come to see Madison Square Garden. Very beginning of 1984, Boston changed that for, format. So I wanted to throw that in. Steve, I'm really excited about this week's show. I'm really excited about our guest. Yeah, uh, well, uh, <laughs> I, I uh, for for once in my life, I was the booker for the show today, and yes. uh, I, I got a great guest. Uh, I had the good fortune of appearing on his show, the Outdated Wrestling Hour, uh, a few months ago, and uh, the guest is from PWI, Bob Smith. Hello, everybody. It's great to finally be here. I I am such a fan of your show. John and Lou and Steve, I'm telling you that, um, and it's for reasons like I just heard. I I don't know how you guys do it to look back into history the way you do and get your time frames exactly right every time. You knock me out, guys. Um, like I said, the Arcadian Vanguard stuff is the, is the gold standard of podcasting. You guys are the gold standard. I am so proud to be here. Well, thank you. I'm I'm, I'm so proud to hear that. Um... I, let me I, now. My first question to you, Bob, it, it's, it's kind of a you know we were off air and you're like, oh, I'm I'm thinking I'm going to get some unique questions, not the same old questions, but here comes what's probably the same old question. <laughs> Tell me about the evolution of a young Bob Smith becoming a wrestling fan. Like, when did this all transpire? Here's, I, I talk about this a lot, and I think it's an interesting story. I am the luckiest guy, dude. I, I am so lucky. First of all, I'm an old man now, but I, I will say this in 19... 19- Bob, I turn 60 next year. Really? Well, I just turned 65 <laughs> in October, so... Oh, no way! You don't sound 60 at all. You don't well, look 65 at all, man. I, I don't know how I do it either, but there you go. But in any event, it's 1983, and in 1981 and 82, I had submitted some freelance articles. I had written sports in college and high school, and... Uh, Where'd you go to college? I went to college SUNY Brockport. 
but I went for communications. Okay. I, I wanted to be on radio, to be honest with you. But, All right. but I always had a way with a pen. And um, back then, um, the sports editor of the paper said, why don't you do a couple freelance articles for me? And as it turns out, they liked my work so much, they actually hired me as a news reporter in around 1981, 1980, something like that. And uh, I, I was a lucky guy because it was in my hometown of Catskill, New York. And right across the street, over the police station, was the Catskill Boxing Club where Mike Tyson trained and learned oh, his wow. craft under Customato and Kevin Rooney. After about two years with the Daily Mail, they made me sports editor, and I had entire access to that boxing club over there. I could just walk in and out. I remember having pizza with Mike Tyson at the pizzeria next door. I mean, we were that tight. So in any event, one thing leads to another. I write an article about Tyson, and it was a major journalism award in 82 or 83 from the New York State Newspaper Publishers Association. It was an interview entitled Tyson at 20, which was, was a um, you know look and conversation with him about what it was like turning 20. And at that point, he was facing like another boxer every month. You know, he was just starting out. Cuss had him on the road fighting every tin can that was out there. But I will say... That was a big deal for me because um, cut to about, I'd say, a year and a half later, I spot an ad in the New York Times. And back then, they had four pages of editorial jobs available. And I see this ad, and it's a simple two-line ad. It says, writer slash editor wanted for sports entertainment pub. And I said... <laughs> they were calling it back. It, oh, I calling have to. It... These were big moments in my life. And, and I knew that wow. sports entertainment was wrestling. And the, the other, all, all the other line was send resume and clips to box whatever it was, RVC New York. And I went, RVC, that's Rockville Center. I said, oh, my gosh, that's Pro Wrestling Illustrated. So I put all my best sports clips, including, including a couple of award-winning articles, into my resume. They called me immediately. I went in, took a writing test, and got the job just as fast. Just like that. So <laughs> that's I, two, insane. Two years before I started with PWI, I was working for an 8,000 circulation local paper in Greene County, New York, and two years later, I'm with PWI. You don't get that lucky, man. You do not get that lucky. But I did have a big interest in pro wrestling. They hired me as kind of a, a boxing-wrestling hybrid in the beginning. And after writing about four boxing articles, including one about Tyson, I said, you know, I'd prefer to be on the wrestling side 100%. They said, you sure? I said, sure. I love wrestling. So the rest is history. And I wrote the first couple of PWI 500s, which is what a lot of people know me for. I wrote them all by myself. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm, you should be honored because I would think that would be something that everyone in the office would want. It's a pie everyone would want to put their finger in. But, you know, here's the problem back then. We put out a thousand magazines. The Wrestler, Inside Wrestling, Sports Review Wrestling, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, Ben Strong, you know, the whole line of them. That went. We had a weekly newsletter. We had boxing magazines and all this other stuff. So the best way to handle it was to let me tackle it and not do my usual duties and spread them amongst the other staffers so I could concentrate on doing that. And I was working days, nights, and weekends getting that thing finished in the beginning. Mind you, uh, John, this was before PCs and desktop publishing and everything. There was no Windows. There was no, uh, you know, Microsoft. We had a, what, Stanley West had spent $35,000 on a word processing system, and that's all it did. 
that's just how long ago this is. So I'm relying <laughs> on my own notes, and I was I was an independent wrestling junkie, and I watched every videotape that ever came out for ten years. So I put it all to good use and hammered that thing out in about ten days. And little did I know the influence that thing would have in the beginning and to this day. So I am proud to have my little finger in that door of history, and uh, it's a nice thing to look back upon. It really is. It definitely is, and and you really have to know your stuff. You have to know Japan. You have to know Mexico. You have to know all of the little indies sprinkled around the United States by the time the, the that came out. Well, to be fair, we didn't do much on Mexico and Japan in those days. Okay. Uh, so, but I did have to know the indies like crazy, and I did know the indies like crazy. I was the guy who took a took a camera and, and would drive to Altoona, Pennsylvania, to cover a Terry Funk Bob Backlund match that like Bob Raskin was promoting or something like that. <laughs> so it it was like I was always attending indie cards. I watched. I was a tape trader. We had tapes coming in from Atlanta. This one lady would record Joe Petticino's eight-hour wrestling block that had Continental on it and world-class and all that other stuff. And then I would, you know, trade tapes with people all over the country, and I watched all of it. I was immersed in the job, and I think I was pretty much the only person who could do that alone in that office. I'm not saying that out of ego. I'm saying it because it's a fact. I, I really was knee-deep in all of professional wrestling at that point. And my knowledge of the indies, I think, is why I got the assignment, to be honest with you. You know, the the difference between you and I back in those days is you were actually getting paid to do what you were doing, whereas I was paying to do it. I was just watching every every third-rate pro wrestling uh, indie that I could get my hands on. I, I wanted everything. I bet you did. And it was harder in those days. You know, since you, you say you're the age girl, which I can't believe is in this minute, but... Um, yeah, in the early 90s, you know, tape trading was really just starting to take off. You know, late 80s, early 90s. And um, you couldn't always find what you wanted to see. I mean, heck, I never saw the chic work until 1980, right? Because there was no tape flying around at that point. So I don't know what to say other than, um, yeah, if it wasn't for videotapes, I would have been, you know, it would have been a much harder job to do for sure. Oh, to say the very least, it would have been a, a darn near impossible job. Now, I, I listened to your podcast. You and Craig Peters were talking about how the magazines were, how they were kind of formulated, put together. And it was something that I always, even when I was really young, even when I was still in grade school, I would buy The Wrestler or, or Inside Wrestling, and I would be like, okay, this doesn't seem right. Like, Baron Von Raschke was wrestling in the AWA, and he flew to New York to do the hot seat interview for Inside <laughs> Wrestling. And even as a an 11-year-old, I think I was, I'm like, okay, he flew to New York to have a conversation that I read in about, six, about 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. And it was just funny, like, you know, you guys talked about how the headline came first, and then you would build the the uh, story around the headline, and the headline was usually based around whatever pictures you guys exactly had. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or or Bill Apter's knowledge of what was going on in the territory as reported to him by one of the companies, you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, my period there was like the end of the total kayfabe GC London publishing Style. In other words, if you go back to the 60s, 70s, into, into the early 80s with the other magazines like Inside Wrestling, if you saw them back then, they were strictly 
the horror of the bad guys, the wonderful scientific good guys, and never the twain shall meet. And, you know, Abdul the Bush must be stopped, that type of article all the time, <laughs> you know? Uh, there was no gray area. Right, but in 79, when they when they turned to PWI, they had a staff that, that had some real journalists on it, to be honest with you. And when things got serious in wrestling, the Bruzy, uh, excuse me, the Bruiser Brody killing, um, steroids troubles, um, other people who were being arrested left and right. We actually ended up covering that stuff. They never would have done that in the old days, but times had changed. And it was the advent of the newsletters in the late eighties. Uh, the Meltzer was taken off and Wade Keller and those people. So we felt an obligation and, you know, we, we couldn't sweep that stuff under the rug. So we covered it all as news. They never would have done that in like 1970, 71, 72. It, 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 everything changed. So the magazines got a little more serious. And uh, I think they got better because it's like you had that blend of some total kayfabe articles and columns. And then you would have the news of the day as quickly as we could get it out. One of the problems with the news, uh, the mag magazine business was by the time we sent the thing to the printer, it didn't hit the newsstand for six weeks. Oh, wow. And, you know, that that's that's hard because, you know, whole angles end. New ones begin by the time those magazines hit the uh, newsstand because we were always fighting what we used to call the six week curse, you know. Stuff would change. It's like when they brought Slaughter into the uh, WWF as an Iraqi sympathizer. You remember that period? Sure, we had, sure we too. Had an right before then of of Slaughter going, I'm going to represent the USA for the WWF, the usual stuff. And we <laughs> ended up with egg on our face on that one because the minute he showed up, he had a, you know, he was anti-USA for a while. So I don't know what to say other than it was that job was always like walking a tightrope. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I can only imagine. And I lived it because, you know, it was just a reality that when you got the wrestler or, you know, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you knew coming in, you know, this news was six to eight weeks old. But then again, it was the only news available. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time, you know, the Lubet magazines or the uh, not Napolitano magazines, they weren't about news. They were about features. Right. Right. And, and there, I, but I will say this, uh, one of the things that make me feel good about wasting eight years of my life for it, and it yeah. wasn't really a waste, but, you know, doing something as goofy as covering pro wrestling in that era was when Bruno Sammartino won the, uh, or was awarded the Hall of Fame award. And I was at the garden that night and he said, you know, if it wasn't for the magazines, nobody in the other countries would have known who I was or the other territories would have known who I was. Those magazines in my day built my name to such a point where I could be booked all over the globe. And I thought about it. I go, you know, he's right. And that's why I think a lot of people valued the wrestling magazines in that era because it really was the number one way, the number one way to get your news, right? I mean, there was no place else to the get it. The only way. It was the only way. Like I said, I mean, you know, there there was no pro wrestling covered in the newspaper unless, like, the Boston Garden or uh, the New York Daily News, like, just printed the results mm -hmm. of the matches at the, you know, at the two gardens. And it was you know, literally the size of two postage stamps. That's exactly right. It was always on the agate pages, too. Yes, exactly. Underneath, like, a box score of hockey or something, you would see... Pro yeah, wrestling, you would have MSG, to look for it. Friday night, and they would it would all be black type, and it would be you know you know Tony Altimore beat S D Jones or whatever it was. It was just just meat and potatoes. There was no explanation, no story. Uh, near the end of my tenure, they brought a columnist named uh, Blackjack Brown into the Daily News. He was New York's only wrestling, I guess, columnist. But uh, you know that's what that was the Hogan era, and everybody wanted a slice of the pie, as it were. 
Yeah, people say that, you know, pro wrestling uh, it wasn't an 80s fad and Hulk Hogan, you know, it was popular way before Hulk Hogan. But Hulk Hogan and the, the WWF doing what they did, it really brought it to a different level. No question about it. I mean, you know, Hulk Hogan's on the cover of mainstream magazines. Uh, Steve, I feel like I'm, I'm hogging up your guest. Let me <laughs> have you throw something in here. Oh, absolutely! No, you're doing great, John. I just wanted to—I wanted to uh, take uh, Bob all the way back to his days of fandom. Uh, when you were a fan, Bob, well before you were writing in the magazines and the newspapers, uh, I, I think your first wrestling that you ever saw was the NWF with Johnny Powers. Right. And I think—I think that somewhere along the way, maybe around '72. That's when it kind of switched over to WWF. Please tell us about that. Yeah, that was us. our local TV station, WRGB in Schenectady, which, by the way, has had a storied history up there of actually presenting studio wrestling. They had Luthez in that studio at one point. I never knew in that. In Schenectady and Albany, they, were, they had live wrestling on TV once a week. And that time slot, Sundays at 11 a.m., was synonymous with wrestling for decades. And it would go away, come back, go away, come back. From 70 to about the middle of... 71 they had the nwf with johnny powers and one day it disappeared but the same promoter in the same arenas about six months later the on pops the wwf back then with chief j strongbow and pedro morales was the champion and that whole bunch so um my memories of that era were uh, first of all i loved the nwf that was jack reynolds was the host and <laughs> with ron martinez people may remember him that was pedro martin martinez's son and they had, what I mean, for a federation only lasted five years, they had Ernie Ladd and Johnny Powers and the Mongols with, uh, Bill Eady was one of the Mongols back then, and Eric they DeBrett even had and Kurt Von Hess then. and on and on. I mean, Bulldog Brower and... Neil Mascaris and, and Ivan Koloff, too. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, and 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 you were like John and I back then. You were the guy going to get the newsstand magazines, and I guess that was probably playing a major role in your wanting to be a writer someday and get into the business. You know, it's funny. I never considered it till I saw that ad. <laughs> that is funny. I never considered. I never thought of sending a resume to a wrestling magazine in my life. I just saw the ad, and I, you know, I just heard a bell. You know, I heard a bell because I was such a wrestling junkie. I'm like. I've got to apply for this job. And here's the, here's the funny part. I had just gotten a new job three weeks earlier in Manhattan, right? Working for really? a music publication. I, I I had to do it. I had to send it in. And I'm glad I did because I like immediately doubled my salary and uh, got to work in wrestling. So, yeah. But it, but it's funny. You made a good point. I never even considered working in wrestling until I saw that classified end in the New York Times. <laughs> Lucky. Now, now I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask a question that, that I'm sure John has got on the tip of his tongues too. As far as the uh, wrestling magazines, I mean, something that John and I both did when we were getting that we were both getting a lot of the back issues. So, so <laughs> tell, give us a little insight into the back issue. Was there like one person back, like in the fulfillment area, filling these orders, or, or, or how busy was that area of the publication? Great question. I've never gotten that question before because um, I've done a lot of interviews the last six months or so. That's a good one. Stanley Weston, somewhere in the late seventies, early eighties, decided, and we they were based in Freeport, Long Island, dingy old office. And he said, we're doing really well. I'm going to build my own building. So he built a five-story building on Maple Avenue in Rockville Center. Beautiful, modern okay. building, right? What he did was he put the sports department or our company on the fifth floor and rented out 
the four floors below, which he filled instantly. So not only did he have his income from his magazines, he had maybe half as much coming in in rent. He's a smart guy. Stanley Weston was a brilliant, brilliant businessman. So anyway, um, I, I miss. I'm sorry, I veered off. What was the original question again? I just as far as the as far as the back issues. Oh, the, like, was there now a here's the deal. The in front issues? of the offices, we had the administrative offices. Right smack in mm-hmm. the middle was Stanley Weston's big office. In the back on the left was the art department. On the right was the editorial department with Stu Sachs and all the boxing people and, you know, all the people, Bill After and all of us. But way down in the basement was the Fulfillment Center, which was a huge, it was the entire basement area, and it was done up very nicely. It didn't look like a basement. And that was a very busy department. We sold a ton of back issues. Case in point, I don't think much of them are left now, to be honest with you. And just out of our curiosity, like like were they like just stacked up to the ceiling? I mean, how did, how did the person in fulfillment like find these specific issues? I think he he had them stacked in chronological order, in you know by mm. title, and he would just grab one, put it Melina. You know, it was it was so archaic in those days. I cannot remember our fulfillment director's name, but I know he put it in a Manila envelope. Um, put a sticker on the top that was typed out with the person's name on it, and it's, it was stamped uh, London Publishing or, or you know Rockville Center, whatever it was. So uh, it was just very rudimentary, but I'll tell you, they got the job done. And and like any other business, they did a ton of business at Christmas time with back issues. Well, that's cool, and, and I think John and I can definitely uh, vouch that we got that Manila envelope with TV Sports from Rockville that's Center. That's right, on TV it. Sports. You're right. That's it. <laughs> but John, you go ahead. I'm sure you have a question. Well, no, I was just going to comment. I mean, as you guys were speaking, I had this like flashback from like 45 years ago of opening up like my package of back issues. And yeah, they came in a manila envelope Mm -hmm. and just like opening it. And it was like a dream come true. This, you know, 20 uh, mint condition old wrestling magazines cancel my plans for the rest of the day. (laughs) You know, I have a funny story, John. I'll go, man. I, I'm working for the Catskill Daily Mail. Um, we'll say this is 81 or 82, right before I started with PWI, right? I'm, I'm, I'm literally driving down the street, and I see there's a folding table in front of a dingy bookstore right down from where our offices were. So I pull the car over, and I get out. And I swear this is true. I've, I've said this on the podcast before. There was probably 350 to 500 wrestling magazines on a table outside with a sign written in an envelope or something that said, take what you want, leave a dollar. Oh, my God. You guess what I did, right? <laughs> Within a week or two, that stack was gone. It was in my house. <laughs> I took them all. I got them all. They didn't care. They were just throwing them away, basically. Yeah. And it was all the magazines, with the Kaiser books, our stuff, um, you know, the Palatano stuff. Anything you th- somebody obviously threw out the wrestling magazine collection and they, they didn't think they could sell it. So I would I, I would I would stop by leave a dollar stop by leave a dollar and grab and you know my ex wife was like what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> These things smell no. they're they're musty. I'm like I'm going to read every one of them, dear. What year was this? Uh, eighty one or eighty two. Okay, so we're a long, long, long way away from eBay or anything like that. Exactly right. Exactly right. No, I, I think I think John was going to ask you if he could go to the table like tomorrow on his off day. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, 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 I'm sure the bookstore is going there. It was one of those old Catskill buildings that was literally falling into the street. And I'm sure the proprietors are 
long past gone. <laughs> but I, I'll tell you, there was a fluke, right? And I'll tell you what, I'll bet reading all those old books, all those old magazines, we call them books in the office, but I imagine reading those oh, okay. didn't hurt when I started in the office. You know, because I, I could, I knew all, you know, I learned about every territory just walking in there. So between cable TV, um, all those old magazines, and, you know, my tape trading proclivities, I really do think I was a perfect hire for that company. And I think history kind of bears that out. You, you are living a lot of people's dreams. And I am not even, that's not even hyperbole. I mean, I can imagine, you know, I couldn't even imagine when I was younger breaking into that world i was so many you know steps beneath that on the ladder you know it was just amazing and i remember you know when i finally got to meet bill apter and craig peters by chance in 1984 mm-hmm. i mean I, I it was like i was speaking to i don't even know what word i could use gods maybe and i'm not even <laughs> exaggerating i was just like blown away by meeting these guys, and here you are hanging out with them five days a week. They're such great guys, too. And I'll, I'll tell you something else. They are. Uh, I met Bill Apter because I was sitting in the Washington Avenue Armory in the second row for a wrestling card, and he was there to shoot pictures of the Tony Gurria versus Superstar Graham championship match, right? I see. I, I turn to my friend. I go, you look over there. That's Bill Apter. And the guy goes, who's Bill Apter? And I go, no, no, no. He, he makes all the <laughs> wrestling magazines, right? So I got brave, and I, he's coming down the aisle. He was changing his film or something. I said, excuse me, are you Bill Apter? He said, yes, I am. And I said, um, you know, I'm a big fan of what you do, and I read all your magazines, and it's, it's an honor to meet you. And we shook hands. He said, thank you very much. It's very nice of you. You know, you know how Bill is. Well, I, nicest guy the ever. The day I applied for the job, he remembered that. Holy cow. Which knocks me out. Because that had to be, what, 77 probably? 76, 77, when Graham had the belt? I think it was, you know... Yeah, oh, no, you know, 77 or 78. That's actually the case. So it's for him to remember all these years later in 88. Um, he's the nicest man on the planet. That's all I got to say about Bill. He he really was. That, that was my experience with him, just, you know... Me being overwhelmed, getting to meet Bill after and Craig Peters, and Bill just handled it, you know, super nice guy. Now, what was it like for you, Bob, when you first started out? I remember Craig Peters telling a story about when he got hired in, I think it was 1980, 80, 80 but I, I think it's 81. 81, 81 that's when right. When I first read, read his first column, mm-hmm. and he's in the office, and he's like, okay, in order to interview these guys, like, where do I get their phone numbers? Everyone just kind of laughed at him because he didn't know what was up. Like, did you have any stories like that? Like, you know, okay, I'm finally looking behind the curtain here. Great question. Or why? You just fit right in. I mean, that's that's nothing wrong with that. The first thing I was surprised by was the amount of work. It wasn't like just looking at wrestling all day. You really had to... I remember one day churning out six to eight articles often. Oh, my like, goodness. We were putting out a magazine a week. And at one point, we were putting out a baseball, uh, fantasy baseball uh, mailer, you know, a, a newsletter. And at one point, we put out the PWI Weekly newsletter. Not to mention we're the boxing We're going to talk about department. that fantasy baseball newsletter by the end of this hour. Trust me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, the, the, the workload was kind of daunting at times. But, you know, you catch up. You get used to it. But in terms of, of really feeling like I'm into it, here's how I knew I was in the insider part of the business. This is a funny story, but I think it speaks to that. 
Bill Apter's on the phone. And I hear him go, thank you very much. And he hangs the phone up. And somebody turns around and spins and goes, was Kamala there? And Bill says, no, but Mrs. Kamala says he'll be home at 630. <laughs> Mrs. Kamala? <laughs> As that, it's at that point when I realized I had a job like nobody else on earth has. You know, it, it's like, <laughs> where do you hear conversations like that? You know? And Bill would find out, uh, Bill would, you know, Bill was really the conduit and, and the real backbone of that whole company because he knew everything, he knew everybody, and he would get information long before anybody else did. And we knew of, you know, Dusty Rhodes getting fired from the NWA before anybody did by, by a long stretch of the imagination. Other things like Hogan coming to the WRF, I, I was told that he knew that first. Bill was a gad about everybody trusted him, and therefore we had the news first of probably any other company in the country other than the wrestling organizations behind it. So one day he, he would spin around and say, oh my gosh, Sabisco is going to be the AWA world champion, and Dave Rosenbaum says, what? Let's Sabisco. But it's, it's moments like that that you realize you, you were privy to stuff that not your average fan would ever have privy to. So, yeah, there were a lot of moments where you say, hmm, we're really in the you know, cutting edge of what goes on here. You know, you mentioned that everyone trusted Bill Apter, and there was a reason for that. I, I feel like he earned that trust over the years, over the decades. Like, he didn't do things like the other magazines did that intentionally exposed the business. Like, there was one really cheap magazine that posted the story about Antonio Inoki winning the WWF championship from Bob Backlund in Japan and explaining the situation. They have pictures with Inoki uh, with the belt. And Bill Apter... You know, the the uh, Victory Sports Series magazines, they did not even mention that because it was not really in anyone else. It wasn't in anyone's best interest, in my opinion, mm -hmm. except that one guy who's trying to sell that weird one magazine. I, I, I bet I know what magazine that was. But anyway, <laughs> any, anyhow, um, yeah, I hear can, you. Can, I mean... Can you take a guess? Because I, I don't even remember. I, it was like I, something I, way down the track. I have my eye on what it might be. You, you get it, Steve? Uh, that, that wasn't it. That wasn't it? That This way predates uh, Carmine oh, and okay. Wrestling Eye. I think Wrestling Eye started in 85, it, so this was like five years had those, earlier. Yeah, those weird-ass Canadian books. Um, I think it was one of those weird-ass Canadian books. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, with the with the print coming off as you, oh, you know, go yeah. through and the pages, getting all over your hands. Headlines like gushing flows of blood you've missed until now. <laughs> yes, right. They always had poorly photographed, bloody covers. I remember that. That yeah. sounds that sounds about right. And in rickety arenas in Modesto, California. <laughs> Steve, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no. Uh, he took he took my word, rickety. I say that all the time. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask Bob: Is was there ever a time that uh, uh, during your tenure, like in the late '80s, early '90s, was there ever a time that a wrestler or promoter got angry with something you did, or angry with a magazine? Was there anything like a any? I'm not saying an altercation, but was there any kind of like a heated moment? like that no it's funny One of my questions yeah you know it's funny there was a lot of stuff going on in, in real terms with real wrestlers like remember this uh hacksaw duggan and iron sheik, sheik moment right. when they were caught in the car together that kind of thing sure so you know the, the cracks were, were showing up and it was also the period where uh 
the Jersey State Athletic Commission admitted to the world that wrestling was fake. Right. So things were changing. That admitted that wrestling was fake. Right. So th- right. things were changing rapidly in the late '80s, early '90s when I was there. But in terms of people getting angry, for my work, I remember writing an article about the Four Horsemen that depicted uh, Sid, Sid Vicious as being quite upset with the other three, and <laughs> okay. somebody in the office at the NWA didn't take kindly to that one. Hmm. That's not our angle. Well, yeah, but I didn't say it was an angle. You know, it was a subtle way of, you know, he was just hearing things. You know, I can't even remember the gist of the article. I just I just remember that hitting me. In terms of other things, if you go back to the apartment house wrestling days, right, in sports review wrestling, you, you remember the apartment house? Uh, bu- you know, yeah, Strongbow, beauty? Strongbow was upset about that with after, Exactly right, and he wasn't the only one. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. after took all the flack for that stuff. And after mm-hmm. had nothing to do with it. It was all Stanley Weston's idea. And Theo Arrett, you know, the California photographer, they, they're the ones that came up with the concept. And, and they did it for about two years. And it did sell magazines, but it also really cheesed off a lot of the wrestling people. I, I can see why. I really can. Those articles, those articles were weirdly twisted. I'll put it that way. They really were. I got a question for, for you and for John, and I want to get both of your answers on this. Well, see, um, can I just throw something really please, quick? Please, go right ahead. Bob, when I when I met Bill after, one of the first things he said to me, I mean, within like literally two or three minutes, what do you like about the magazines and what don't you like about the magazines? And right away, I said, Bill, I am so happy that you got rid of the apartment wrestling. Mm-hmm. This is right when, right when they got rid of it, like the beginning of 1984. And that was the first thing I said to him. You know, I, I didn't like it either. I, I really didn't like it. Either. I was buying those books, but I, I just thought it was a waste of space. I'd rather I'd rather read about Jose Lothario, you know? Yeah, that's how we felt, because we wanted to see more wrestling articles. But, uh, but I wanted to ask both of you guys your opinion on this. Uh, a Pro Wrestling Illustrated debuted in August of 1979, and I can remember going to the mall, buying it. And on the way home, I heard uh, the radio played that Thurman Munson had passed away in the, in the airplane crash. So that's how I always remember that it was August of 1979. But uh, for, for years and years, like over a decade, the wrestler and inside wrestling had been the number one publication of the Weston magazines. I wanted to ask both of you, uh, how long do you think it took – PWI to really become considered the Sports Illustrated of the Weston magazines uh, was it almost immediately, or did it take a number of years? It took off very, very quickly, but it really peaked around 83, 84, 85. Okay. Craig Peters told me, and I had to look it up, and it's true. Now, this is only on the newsstand, but for a short period of time, Pro Wrestling Illustrated outsold Sports Illustrated on the newsstand. I am not making that up. It's it's verified. That's amazing. And I'm not saying you know with with subscriptions because most most people subscribe to Sports Illustrated, so they they were right. by far the bigger magazine. Let's not get crazy, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they were selling so many magazines. And Craig Craig was on my show talking about like the bonuses they got back then and how well things were going. Uh, that was a real peak for London Publishing. That that early '80s period, they were off the charts selling magazines, and Hogan sold it. A ton of magazines, no question about it. So for people who didn't like that era, um, it was kind of gold for anybody involved with pro wrestling at that point. And, and if anybody doesn't believe your story, right now on uh, Sirius XM, their wrestling show is higher rated than any NFL show, baseball show, and any sports show whatsoever. So, I mean, I, I completely believe what you're telling me. Now, wrestling, I always say, is like a roller coaster ride, peaks and valleys. 
You know, right. so you could be you could be right on top of that peak, but you can drop just as fast. Look at <laughs> WCW. Oh God. <laughs> so many promotions that just went downhill so fast. Uh, I mean, it's it, it, it's the law of nature. It would take me forever to, uh, you know, to build a car from the ground up. It would take me two seconds to wreck the car. And <laughs> pro wrestling was just like that. Yeah. I mean, um, so which leads me to, you know, my job. You know, around 88, 89, 90, sales were faltering. That was past the steroid scandal, and parents weren't letting their kids watch wrestling as much at that point, and wrestling really didn't know what it was, and the territories were dropping off, and there was a lot of lot of confluence of things going on then, and sales went down, and our company's <laughs> concept of fighting poor sales was to put out more magazines, honestly. Oh, no. So we added to, with other things, like you know, we did a uh, magazine called Wrestling's Bad Guys for a while, featuring Joey Styles, the real Joey Styles, by the way. Um, hmm. Did you know he interned at our magazines? I did not know that. Yes, Joey Styles got to start in the wrestling business with us. Hmm. Nice. And I believe I was there the day he met Paul Heyman. I bet you're probably right. You know, one reason I bet another reason that the wrestling magazines, you know, they started to decline in the late 80s, you know, 88, 89. I used to buy those magazines to find out what was going on with the promotions I could not get on TV. I knew what was going on with the WWF. I knew what was going on with Georgia, but I wanted to keep up with Florida, the mid-Atlantic area, etc., by the late 80s, everything worth seeing was on TV, and the only territories left were like Portland and Memphis, etc., and nothing against those territories, but they just, you know, you knew at that point that was minor league wrestling. Well, I'll tell you what, Calgary went away, Continental went away, even Smoky Mountain went away, what was it, around 92, 93, right? Um just name the federation. Started in 92 and died in 95. Yeah, and if you look, the, the Memphis was really the last of the Mohegans. Right. Florida was long dead. I mean, just just go around the horn. I mean, it was it was kind of sad to watch. And, you know, my interest waned even at that point. And I was away from the magazines. But, you know, I worked for WCW. I don't know if you guys know this. I worked for WCW Magazine under Colin Bowman. I also worked for Wrestling's Main Event under, under Sandy Krebs. And I worked for WOW out under Bill Apter. You know, all mm. freelancing, but I did continue wrestling for another seven or eight years after I left PWI, so I was part of the scene. But I, I noticed everything was eroding, you know? Everything was eroding. And even when I was leaving uh, the WCW magazine, or when it was literally, or when Colin stopped publishing it, you could see the cracks in that foundation, too. So it was a rough time. And the product got kind of weird. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's the thing. When wrestling is bad, wrestling is really bad. You know, there's too many, too many WCW shows, too much WWF content. I'm glad that they've they seem to have reached a peak these days where they have just enough time and not too much time on the air. Bob, I've got a question for you. Uh, I think the reason that John and I come off as so well first on our wrestling on this show is that when we used to get our, uh, you know, Observer uh, would come in the mail on a Saturday or it would come on a Monday, depending on the mail carrier, uh, we would uh, we would read it probably, probably, I'm sure John did the same as I did. We probably read it like five times at least. You know, we probably read it, read it so it was, you know, back in the back of our brain somewhere. <laughs> Uh, how many issues of the Observer would you say were floating around in '88, '89 that hit your offices? One, but we re- we put it on the copy machine. 
right? So everybody had their own copy, you know, because we, we would just recopy it on the copy machine. Yeah, um, that was another, probably another reason for the, the slow erosion of the wrestling magazine world was the newsletters. Right. Because there you could get the news right away. There you could get the inside news right away. We weren't doing that. Right. And things were changing. That was another factor involved. You know, there's a whole, like I say, the whole confluence of things all happening at once. But yeah, we read it from cover to cover. I have nothing but respect for Dave Meltzer as a reporter. Yeah, he's incredible. No, as a reporter. I don't care about his opinions. People get mad at him for his five-star matches. I don't care about that stuff. When you wanted the meat and potatoes, you know, the grit, you know, where else are you going to find it that Randy Rose left Georgia? You know, you know what I'm saying? Right. It's like you can only find right. that out in the newsletters. And um, I, I respected that. I just think that he was a first-rate reporter. People, people lambast me on Facebook for saying that, but they can't get past they can't get past an opinion and what else he does. You know, because he he's done so much. You know, and people say, "Well, he was the death of the wrestling industry." Really? No. Oh, right? No. <laughs> right? Really? No, he wasn't. No, he enhanced it for he enhanced it for so many of us. Yeah. Right. Exactly. He's a fan too. You know, and he was always always very cordial with me in my in my you know I met him several several times and talked to him on the phone even more. Mm -hmm. I always consider him the consummate professional journalist, and that's why I still feel to this day. And I'm going to leave it at that. You know, Steve, you had mentioned that when we got the Observer on Saturday or Monday, whatever, you know, we'd read the thing for, for from cover to cover. Number one, I mean, you know, I would go out to dinner with my girlfriend, and, I would, and if I didn't have time to read it beforehand, I would be sitting there at the dinner table at a restaurant <laughs> reading the Observer. And it always started with, I just want to read the front page, and of course, you know, that never held up. But you mentioned, Steve, that, you know, we would read the Observer cover to cover, if I got a copy of the wrestler in the you know at the newsstand, you know by the end of the day that would be read cover to cover, and you know the news, you know what's happening or whatever names making news would be read more than once for sure. And if I got you know a back issue, I mean I would go through I could go through a back issue easily in one night, more than one back issue. So it was more than just the Observer for me at least. It was the it was the magazines too bob i think i think in retrospect i think uh you guys should have done a lot more merchandising like we like john and i were laughing a few episodes ago about angelo mosca you know carrying flair around with the pwi t-shirt on i think you guys should have mar merchandised the heck out of those t-shirts and more baseball hats anything with the pwi logo i think those things were sold like hotcakes but you know what the problem was in those days though I do. It was my. Go ahead. The wrestling business was myopic. If we decided to mass market those T-shirts and hats, mm -hmm. and let's say, I don't know if Walmart, Walmart was around then, right? Or, or I don't know what the department store. You put them in departments. I think I think they would. I think they would have sat there. I, I think wrestling is its own animal, and we would only we only concentrated on selling that stuff to wrestling fans. You know, in our magazine, that was really the only way to get one is to send the coupon in, right? So. Um, I, I agree with you that they probably missed out on some marketing opportunities, but the company at the point when I was there didn't have the financial wherewithal to do something like that, to be honest with you. Now, Bob, I have a question that ties in with the merchandising as well as the magazines themselves. In 1985, 
I went to, uh, I think it's in West Warwick, Rhode Island, uh, wherever Rocky Point Amusement Park used to be, <laughs> and they were having a show, a wrestling show, and I think it was an IC, I know it was an ICW show, and they had Dr. D. David Schultz against Ric Flair, right? Mm-hmm. And I saw a guy in the red Pro Wrestling Illustrated t-shirt, I did not recognize this person, but I'm like, wow, okay, obviously, you know, and, and he was uh, photographing the matches. And I'm like, okay, are we going to see an article on this match? And what do you know, about three months later, it's the front and center, center cover. Uh, Ric Flair is in a, a headlock by Dr. G. David Schultz. You, you can see both of their faces. And it's Ric Flair says, I wrestle the men that Doc, uh, that Bob, uh, that Hulk Hogan, excuse me, is afraid of. And at that moment, the light kind of came on. I'm like, okay, it's the pictures, it's the headline, and then it's the it's the column. Mm-hmm. Yes, you 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 make a good point. We would we would, and I'll give you a little insider stuff. And I, we did talk about it on the show with Craig Peters, but I'll repeat it here. We would get the, the pictures and some angles from Bill Apter. We would write the article based off the photos and the headline. That's exactly right. We would actually come up with the headlines first, not last. A news reporter writes the headline last, not first. Right. And it worked like a charm because, you know, you kind of knew what it was about. You could get to the conclusion of it immediately by writing a nice, juicy headline. And that's that's how we did it. And you're exactly right about that. Your, your point is spot on. And, you know, I remember you. we had talked about, you know, everyone trusts Bill Apter, everyone in the wrestling business. Like, looking back in 1977 – they put it the hint in skywriting that Bob Backlund is going to be the next WWF champion. Um, I mean, looking back, every hint was dropped, but they never came out and said it, which you know would have, you know, might have sold some magazines short term. But Bill was smarter than that. I mean, it was also obvious that he knew superstar Billy Graham was winning the championship, and there were hints, but he never. He never crossed that line where, you know, he he gave that away as news like some of the newsletters would. Let's be honest. You know, I knew that, that Backlund was wearing the strap a month before, and I'll tell you how. I was a fan back then. The very first time I ever attended a card as an upstater at Madison Square Garden, the main event was Superstar Graham, then the champion against Mil Mascaris. But the co-main event was an eight-man tag team match with Backlund... Ah. Gurria, Zabisco, and Peter Mayavia versus Sukluna, Stasiak, Fuji, and Tanaka, right? Okay? At the end of the match, you see Backlund standing all alone, and there's Sukluna and Fuji and Tanaka. Oh my gosh, no way he's beating all three guys, right? Of course he did. Pinned them all, pinned all three. I said he's winning the title next. We got the wrong month to buy tickets because he's going to win the title next, next time. And it's exactly what happened. That and you know what's you know, funny about that? That card was not televised. It's one of the few that they don't have any tape of from that era. They used to show it on HBO back then, and um, there was no tape of it. But uh, and they announced that night that he had, due to what he had done in the tag team, he had won the title shot the next month. So we put two and two together. I said, "Oh my gosh, he's going to win the belt. We're not going to be here for that one." Because <laughs> I think the Mascara's Graham match was kind of a DQ or something like that, you know. So that's that's what it was, and I, I, but that was just a fan's hunch, you know. 
But you're looking at things, John, from more of a you know from a promotional aspect, and I think you're right about that. You know, I think most people were surprised when he won. Do you do you feel that way too? Well, here's the thing: I have been told um, over the years that quote everyone unquote at Madison Square Garden on February 20th, 1978, knew that Bob Backlund was winning the championship. But then a couple of years ago, I had a gentleman named John Jance on. I I need to have John back on soon. And he was at the show, and he says that, no, that wasn't true. You know, some people might have thought it, but there wasn't that, you know, electricity in the air that, okay, we're about to see the title change. Interesting. So it's it's one of those things that you never know, and it, it happened almost 50 years ago. My goodness, uh, Steve. I, once again, I have to step out of your way. I'm, I'm hogging up all the talk here. No, no, we, we've been doing we're pr- pretty much 50-50. But I did have a question for Bob. Um, you know, writing for a wrestling magazine sounds like a dream job, but every job has its stresses and drawbacks. <laughs> what would be what would make this job you know difficult or stressful in your opinion? Like what what was the one thing that was you know stressful about your job? Oh, it could be stressful for sure. No job is perfect. No job is perfect. Um, Bill Apter loves to tell the story how I became a snarling beast during putting the PWI 500s together. <laughs> he always says, "Well, Bob has the nicest personality." But I remember the time I go, "Hi, Bob," and he goes, "Leave me alone," which is kind of an exaggeration, but. It's pretty close to the truth, really. Um, I think also, um, let's see now, just workload. It was a ton of work, a lot. Workload, workload, workload. Like I say, six articles in a day, plus other effluvia. And then they made me managing editor halfway in, right? So I had all that writing to do and all the editing, plus ad placements, other business decisions. I I, I went from one one of the guys to... You know, being above a couple of the guys who had been there longer, you know, and it was it was kind of funky. So, yeah, yeah. It, it was a little stressful because I knew how sales were going down at that point. But nothing was more stressful, you two, than Stanley Weston walking in and saying he was selling the books. Yeah. That's stress. Kappa Publishing. Yep. I, I couldn't go. I couldn't leave with them. And again, I understand Stanley was getting on in years. He, he made his money on the magazines and then he made his money selling them. But even if I wanted to go, I couldn't go. So it was just one of those things, you know. And then I became very stressed out because I stayed with them until I found another job, to be honest with you. And, I, and that was the worst period for me. To let. And I hate to admit this, but when I, when I quit, I ran out of there. Oh, wow. I just ran out of there. I, I, I got a job, I think, on a Wednesday and told them I'm, I have to start Monday, which was true, by the way. The next company wanted me to start <laughs> on a Monday. Right after getting hired, and I said, I got to do what I got to do. And here's, here's the sad part. This stresses me out to this day, John. I, uh, and Steve, I, I grabbed a handful of magazines, ran out of there, and that's all I have. I have maybe six copies of everything I ever wrote, which was really dumb on my part. Because I had been saving some books, but I ran out. I don't mean physically ran out of the building, don't get me wrong. But I, I, made, I, like I, made, I made my plans to get out of there as quickly as possible and not look back. And I think that's Which part makes of the reason sense. why I left wrestling after a while. I, just, it was, I left on such a weird way that I just said, let me go find something else to do. You know, enough of this. And that's after my freelance dried up, I said, you know, what the heck with all this stuff. I'm not going to chase it. So, the, yeah, I think the end was the most stressful thing I had to go through. You know what I'm saying? Because I had the rug pulled out from under me. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I remember I took a creative writing class in college, and the first day of this class, the instructor, and this is this person's exact words, he's like, you know, if you want to be a writer for a living, it's not like moving your bowels. It just doesn't come out when you're ready for it to come out. You've got to sit at that desk and get it done. I, is that fairly accurate? Oh, man, you made a great point. And see, that's another good new question. Yes, I would get writer's block. We all did. Of I'm course. writing my 18th story on Hulk Hogan in a six-month period. What the heck am I going to say now? <laughs> right? And I, I remember one time I had bad writer's block to the point where I couldn't sleep at night. You know what I'm saying? It's it's like the repetitive. I started out like a house on fire, caught up with everybody else, became part of the scenery. And I remember one time about midway through my tenure there, I, I'm staring at my keyboard. I'm staring at you know I'm staring I'm staring at my screen. I'm going, I can't even write a lead right now. Something took over, and I, I got bad writer's block. Until one day I said, you know what? And I used the curse word in my head. I said, that's enough. Here we go. I'm just going to write and let the chips fall where they may. If Stu, Stu would have the final look at all, Stu Sachs would have the final look at all the articles. He said, if he doesn't like this, I don't care. And the minute I said the heck with it, my writing got really good. <laughs> so it, it's, it's like, um, yeah, the writer's block happens to every writer. I don't care where you are. I had my news reporting days too. You know, you, you, just, you just kind of burn out when you do a lot of stuff fast. I mean, that totally makes sense. You fall right asleep when you stop worrying about having to fall asleep. You know, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a funny thing. Even at the job I have now, if I'm, if I'm going a mile a minute, I'm fine. I got to do this. I got to do that. Oh, this came up. I got to answer the phone. I got, what's going on over here? What's going on over here? But the minute you stop doing it all, like you put your feet up for 20 minutes, you break down. Once the adrenaline goes away, it's not the same. And it was the same way back then. You know, it's, it's like... The worst part was the pace of work. It really was. And I'd get grouchy, you know, because it's like, I got to do this, I got to do that, you know. I think we all did at one point. You know, it was kind of hairy when we kind of saw the writing on the wall for the company. So, uh, you know, and then guys had to decide at the end whether they're going to move or not. It had to be very hard on everybody, not just me. Hardly just me. I, I can only imagine. I, here's a question I have for you. You have to do all those writing, you know, write all those columns, you know, first, oh, again, the picture and then the headline and then the uh, the story. Did you ever use anything uh, to inspire you creatively? Like, would there, was there something you would look for? Like, okay, I watched this TV show and I got an idea for, for a column from it or something like that. There was one time... Specifically, another great question, by the way. There was one time specifically, you remember when Sting tore his knee up, tore in Protella I sure do. Climbing a cage? I was watching live, and I was wondering, okay, why is Sting walking like that? And then I got the news two days later that he tore his ACL. Right, and just right. That was the worst possible timing. Right. So I came up with a concept, because I had heard of a Philadelphia Phillies outfielder who also had torn his ACL. I can't remember his name as we sit here and speaking, but you know what? Gary Maddox? No, no, it wasn't one of the stars. It was a younger guy. Oh, But he, he okay. had really ripped up his knee. And hmm. the same way Sting did. I said, so I said, Sting, for inspiration, turned to the story of, I'll just say, Joe Stone or whatever his name was. And then I got a, an AP picture of this baseball player. I kept following him in the box scores, and I kept following him in the, uh, you know, 
it, you see if he's coming back from the DL and all this other stuff. And Sting comes back, and the outfielder came back. So he says, I was so happy. And then the same baseball player ripped the other knee up. Oh, Seriously. man. He came back from the injury and then ripped the other knee up. <laughs> and he's going, I feel so bad. I got to get a hold of this guy. So I had a whole sidebar of Sting following this baseball player's career because he had the same injury. You see what I'm saying? Hmm. Wow. I do. Was it Jeff Stone from the Phillies? I think it was Jeff Stone. You're right. All right, because that sucks for him because a lot of his game was speed. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think his name was Jeff Stone. You may be right about that. But it, again, it's so long ago. You know, my memories. You know, you know, you know how old I am. You know, so <laughs> so it, it's like. Uh, but I thought that was kind of creative. Take the same injury with two different athletes and kind of intermingle them and have one follow the other to see how he's doing it. That no, that's an outstanding idea. Yeah. So that that was that was one of the things. I'll tell you one more thing I have to ask you, because, of course, we're running out of time. It's the shortest hour of the week every week. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I wanted to ask you, like, when have you I know Steve already asked a variation of this question, but like they would have articles in the magazines like, you know, Andre the Giant. Uh, pens an article, How I Saved Bob Backlund's Title, using just one example. Mm -hmm. Like, that, did you ever run into a wrestler who was kind of like, what are you doing, man? Or, or, you know, just like <laughs> objecting to what he said in the article that he never said? Can I go back to the 500 on this? Absolutely. I'm in Memphis. Chris Candido's working in Memphis at that point. I knew Chris from, uh, I knew Chris before he started when he was sitting up rings. Uh, at NWA shows with, with Tammy sitting there reading a book in the front row. <laughs> and <laughs> I see him in Memphis. I go, how you doing? He says, I'm doing fine, but I got a bone to pick with you. I said, what? He says, how come I'm 60-some-odd 60, 60 numbers down in the PWI 500 in year two? I went, homina, 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 homina. What can I tell the guy? Well, Chris, it wasn't what you did. It was other guys went up in front of you a little bit. It's all right. You didn't sail that that much. And blah, 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 blah. I, you know, I had to make up a story. I, you see what I'm saying? It's like you're confronted with something you actually wrote. Oh, and I, right. I had to deal with DDP in year two of the PWI 500 because we had a computer snafu and a few guys got left off and he was one of them. <laughs> and he's, I, he says, I got a bone to pick with you too. <laughs> so I had to explain away what happened, say there was nothing, absolutely nothing personal about it. Or, or even when you, in fact, I remember Ric Flair looking at the magazines in the locker room once. I, did, I didn't hang out in locker rooms a lot, but this is one time when he was sitting there reading a magazine. He goes, How come I'm not in the singles? How come I'm not in the championship contenders? He wasn't champ at that point. And I said, Well, it's because you were tag team at that point, remember? And it was like eight weeks ago. He went, oh, yeah. So, yeah, we'd have to explain ourselves once in a while, you know. The guys really took it seriously, or the boys, I should say. I don't. I, I find it both flattering and head-scratching at the same time. But that's I the mean, way it so was. so you know, three very reasonable, I mean, you know, DDP is the nicest guy. Chris Candido was a really good guy. You know, Flair's Flair. Um it just, you know, it's funny that you can sometimes, like when you were telling the Candido story, 
it's going through my head. I'm like, Chris, leave that crap at the at the monster factory. What are you doing? <laughs> and you know, there's an old expression. And if you are or were in the business, please do not take exception to what I'm saying. I'm just re- reporting what the the expression that was going around or that goes around. The biggest marks are the guys in the dressing room. Mm-hmm. But you know, I'll put it this way too: playing devil's advocate. Um, I was a blues musician who made albums for a while, and I got a lot of good reviews, and I got one bad one. But at least they spelled my name right. <laughs> right? I mean, you got to take the good go. with the bad. You know, sometimes it's going to be a bump in the road with what people write about you, but at least they're paying attention to you, right? It's very true. So that's that's about all I can say about that. I mean, I, mean, I love Chris. Chris was a great guy, and all my dealings with him were good. He wasn't mad at me. He was just curious, you know? So yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I just found out how doggone important the PWI 500 was, and it's to this day for a lot of people. Yeah, one thing I want to ask you about before I, I hand it over to Steve, because I want him to get in, uh, you know, one more question that he's been looking to, I mean, looking to ask. How did the ratings get compiled in the magazines? That was always the first thing I looked at. I see new magazine in drugstore. I go right to the ratings <laughs> because they told their own story. If all of a sudden, you know, Roddy Piper was number three in the NWA and Greg Valentine had fallen off, that meant the United States title had just changed hands, mm-hmm. for example. But like, who was kind of behind the, the wheel of that car? I can only say for my tenure... About a year and a half in, I was. I did the radio. Yes. Yeah, that was my favorite job. My favorite job. It was based on wind losses for that period that we could get. You know, people don't realize a lot of the stuff we did when it comes to the ratings and stuff was absolutely real. It really was. We really weighed them in like it was a sport. And like champions were rated higher. Like it would always be like, we'll stick with WWF for that Champion in the Intercontinental Chamber would be number one after the champion, and then the contenders, and then other people who were working their way up or down. Um, a pinfall was weighted, at least during my tenure, a pinfall was weighted heavier than a countout or disqualification victory. Same goes for losses. And um, if you were on a losing streak, you'd probably fall two or three spots within that one month period, you know. But no, it was all based on wins, losses, championships. An emergence, too. If you saw somebody around 9 or 10, they were either coming up or going down, you know? And sometimes you... I remember in the early days, you'd see somebody at number 10, you'd never see them there again. Let's say it was 1988, you'd see... Um, oh, gosh. Just, just, no, go further. Rick McGraw or somebody like that. I'm just pulling the name out of my head. But you wouldn't see him the next month because he would have a, a, a startling win at the end of that period, but he didn't have another one after that, so you'd never see him again. It was it was as serious as we could get it, but I will say that that goes for the big promotions. They would give us guidelines, but you know we did the ratings. The only ones we didn't do specifically were for the real small promotions, you know, Marius Ovaldi, George South, you know, those really tiny promotions. They'd give us a top ten and we'd print it. <laughs> that totally makes sense. So would you, let's say in 1989, like not only take a look at the big shows, the television shows, but would you go down the house show list for like WCW and say, okay, this is what happened in Chattanooga. Yeah. This is what happened in Atlanta. This is what happened in Charlotte oh, heck the yeah. next night. Yeah. 
which would drive the promoters crazy sometimes because you know a lot of times they didn't want you they didn't want the general public finding out what happened to house shows like <laughs> if it was the flare steamboat feud you know they would run a similar card in boston than they did let's say in new haven or philadelphia so if the results of the three cards are so doggone similar i don't think they really wanted that out there but we did it anyway there's another thing that, you know, another tightrope you had to walk. Sometimes you'd print the truth, but they didn't want the truth out there. Yeah. I mean, Memphis was swapping championships all over the place. You know, dark title changes. Like, they, they, would, change, they would change a strap in Louisville, but it, wouldn't, it never happened as far as Memphis was concerned. You know what I'm saying? So I do. It, it was like, it was, it was tough because you'd have the, you know, the politics. There was politics with the... Uh, I'll put it this way. There was politics with all the federations, but that was Aptor's job. <laughs> so I didn't really have to deal with it all that much. Yeah, I mean, I do remember they were very, again, they were, the the Aptor magazines or the Weston magazines were an absolute asset to the promotions out there. Like, they would print results, and they would give you the city, and they would give you the card, but they wouldn't give you the date. They wouldn't give you every angle that every promotion was running, because sometimes those angles would overlap, and they would kind of expose the business. And, you know, once again, Bill was very big into not exposing the business. Mm -hmm. When I met him in 84, you know, he was very, he was very over the top friendly. But, you know, you ask him, well, about what do these guys make? And you're not getting a straight answer, but mm -hmm. any, any kind of an answer. But I'll tell you what, Steve, let me, let me ask you, have you asked Bob uh, one last question before I start to wrap up? Sure. This is uh, my last question. I just wanted to to ask you, and I know uh, Bill After is an incredibly nice guy, and he's he's was very friendly with all of his peers at ringside, uh, the Frankie Amatos, the George Napolitanos, all the other photographers. But but did you guys have any in your workplace? Like, did you guys have any inkling how well, say, Wrestling World was doing, or say, like the new kid on the block, like Wrestling Eye, which tried to be a little more cutting edge, and they were a little more insider. Did you guys have any like numbers or stats as far as how well they were doing, and and it, or did you guys not even care, or, or or maybe somebody in management cared, and maybe it trickled down to you guys. During my, t I can only speak for my tenure, unfortunately, and I think the only thing we, we follow was the WWE magazine sales. Okay. The others were so far behind us, I don't think it really mattered to them. I see. As okay. populous as other magazines are, I have to be honest, I think the London stuff, in terms of just sales, blew everybody else out of the water every time. Yeah. Even our worst stuff. You know? Yeah, Vince, Vince was selling a lot, but yeah, you guys were selling a lot too. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just the way it was. Um, it, when the newcomers came about, the Wrestling Eyes and Wrestling Furies, and there, sure. there was, I remember this, there was another upstart around that point, and it's like. Um, New Wave Wrestling. You, you would go to a newsstand and see 20 wrestling magazines if they carried everything. And it got mm -hmm. a little daunting after a while. So I think it actually worked in our favor because people went with what they knew. Right. But yep. Honestly, you know, we had the established names out there. And mm -hmm. people went with what they knew. So I really didn't think that – I don't think the new magazines were as much competition or the other companies were as the newsletters were at that point. And it, it was a friendly competition. We didn't look down on the newsletters at all. We didn't begrudge them their success. But we could tell that we had to change our tone – and do something different because they were eating. And I'm sure there were wrestling fans who took up newsletters and stopped buying wrestling magazines. It had to have been. 
right? It just it just seems logical, doesn't it? Yeah, but 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 to give you credit, um, I think today you know uh, PWI is kind of the last man standing as far as it's the last uh, official American wrestling magazine still out there. And uh, and when people think about PWI, what's the one thing that comes to their mind is the PWI 500, mm-hmm. which you were the creator of. So oh, that's no, your whoop, legacy. Whoop, 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 whoop. I was. It was a team <laughs> effort. I believe, and this is this this is how that worked. Stu Sachs said, "You know, the, we we need to, something to goose sales a little bit. You know, the uh, ratings are always so popular. Why don't we know a PWI 100?" I said, and I went, "Okay, 100. Why not 500?" <laughs> and Stu, being Stu, he looks me dead in the eye. Goes, "You're gonna do it?" I said, "Sure." Oh boy. So so Stu may have come up with it, but you put no, it in, in emotion. No, he came up with the original inkling of a concept. Okay, but I was the one to put my hand in the air. Said, "Why not 500?" So, if um, I, I will say to keep peace in the family that he created the Peter Grove <laughs> 500. Yeah, I, I don't Sounds care. Good. I, it, it's not that big a deal. You know what? We really were a collaborative effort at, at those magazines. We put our our chairs in a circle every week to talk about what was in each magazine and come up with concepts and stories and titles and stuff like that. I mean, like one of us would blurt out half a title and somebody would finish the sentence, you know? <laughs> so, it really was a collaboration. And... That's what made it so much fun. And that's why I'm friends with all those guys all these years later, because we really worked together to try to make the best product we could. It sounds corny, but it's true. Wow. It doesn't sound corny at all. Bob, I mean, I am not saying this to get you to like me even more than you already do. I mean, they were my favorite magazines by a mile. The, the Keitzer magazines might have had you know a little bit more of a look behind the curtain. Not really... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Exposing the business. Um, but, you know, you guys had the news. You had the great pictures. You had the excellent columns. I mean, I remember, you know, I was buying magazines starting in 1976. I remember the day I bought Pro Wrestling Illustrated for the first time, you know, hot July day in 1979. They'd been hyping it up in Inside Wrestling and The Wrestler, and I was really looking forward to it. And as soon as I saw it, I'm like, this is going to be the, I'll bet, this... Back then, Inside Wrestling and The Wrestler were tied as the number one wrestling magazine. And I could kind of tell, okay, these guys are looking for a real number one. And to answer Steve's question, I think by mid-1980, Pro Wrestling Illustrated had gotten there. Mm-hmm. Wow. It really did. But, you know, I, I, I call myself the Martin Short of PWI. Now, you know, I'm Martin Short. <laughs> Here's why. If you were an SCTV fan like I was... The original cast had John Candy and Joe Flaherty and Andrew Martin, blah, 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 right? But at one point, John Candy says, I'm going to go do movies. They replaced him with Martin Short, who was great, but he came in at the tail end of the greatness. So I mm-hmm. look at myself as the Martin Short of PWI because I came in at the tail end of what I called those glory years from 79 to about, until, well, to be honest, till the company moved away. I think that's fair. And... um I was just happy to have my finger in that door, man. It was great. No, I mean, that makes sense because wrestling in the 90s, especially the early to mid-90s, was nowhere near as popular as it was in the 1980s. And, you know, as the quality and popularity of the product goes down, that's going to be reflected on the magazines that cover them. Right. Absolutely true. So you're you're like Tony Soprano. You got in at the end. I got in at the end. I, I got in and I stayed as far as I could. Yeah, yeah. It, it's um, 
I was so fortunate to get that job. You heard how lucky I got. It's all luck, man. Life can be lucky. Uh, and I believe it. There's not a day that goes by that I don't say, boy, you were lucky. You know? So why have any regrets or, or bad feelings about anything or anybody? I, I got to do something that very few people at that time got to do. I mean, now Forbes has a wrestling writer. New York Post has a wrestling writer. You know, the, the back of the TGI Friday's menu has a wrestling writer. You know, it's, it's like they're, <laughs> they're everywhere now. <laughs> but... I was there when it was just me and Abder in, a, in a, a locker room after a title change. So I was one of the chosen few in a, in a day when there really were just a few. How can I complain? That's totally how I see you. You you absolutely have lived a, a charmed life doing something that you know only a handful of people got to do. You were part of the, the Pro Wrestling Illustrated empire, and that is so cool. Listen, I want to tell everyone listening that the pure wrestling part of the show is over. So if you're not into what we're about to talk about next, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. But I do want to ask Bob about another magazine that you put out, Fantasy Baseball Weekly. <laughs> I had no idea that there was a relationship between the, the Weston magazines and, and that fanzine. Yes, the same people did that. The wrestling staff did it. And I think a couple wow. of the boxing writers. That, well, we, had, we had guys who were with Newsday. I think Rosenbaum wrote, Dave Rosenbaum wrote, wrote some stuff. I know Jeff Ryan in the box department literally worked for Two Newsday, and I believe he does to this day, which is a major New York City, Long Island newspaper. And Stu Sachs was with Newsday and a couple of the other guys. They, we all had news credibility. You know, or we came from newspaper world. And somebody said, you know, fantasy baseball is hot. Let's try to put it on a newsletter. So we did. Now, when was this? Oh, gosh, 90, 91. Okay. Right on top of all the other stuff we're doing, they threw this on us, and I didn't write a whole lot of it because I think I was managing editor at that point. And Dave Rosenbaum really wrote a lot because he was really into baseball and really got into it. And you know, there's a lot of stats and figures and you know ways to win and stuff like that. Um, I don't know how well it did. It didn't last all that long. I remember it came and went during my tenure, but I had fun with it. And I'll tell you a little anecdote from it. Yes. Um, I ended up getting published in a Simon & Schuster book for the first time. because somebody, oh, wow. somebody read, I did a column about baseball simulation games, like Stratomatic and APA and all that other stuff. I did a, whole, sure. I did a column on ones that the fans could check out because, it, again, that was statistical-based stuff. So somebody, John Thorne, who was a major baseball writer, contacts me and goes, I'd like you to write a chapter in this book I called... I used to get his book every year. Yeah, but he, we put out, he put out a book called The Whole Baseball Catalog around, again, early 90s. He said, we'd like to, you to devote a chapter to you and your knowledge of baseball simulation. So I wrote it for them. And um, wow. here's the funny part. All these years later, and I don't, I don't say this on the podcast a lot, but I also work for Stratomatic. <laughs> All those, it's, you see, my, my life has been a series of whack stuff. I mean, it's, it's like really, really strange that I would end up working for one of the companies I wrote about as a fan back in the day. You know, it's funny that uh, John had mentioned earlier in the show about like, you know, one of the greatest days was when he, when those 20 back issues showed up. I think that was probably 
back in the 70s for him or maybe even the early 80s. But uh, one of the greatest days of my life and, and uh, before I met my beautiful wife and everything was a day, I think it was probably um, like March or April of 1981 when I had ordered every Stratomatic card for that new season. <laughs> and I even ordered the extra cards, which, you know, if anybody that plays Stratomatic knows, you could spend a little bit more and get these. Yes, they're called know, the, addition, player- the additional players. Yeah, the additional players, players that maybe didn't really play like uh, enough, but but they they got their own card. You had to pay a little bit more for them, and that was the greatest day of my life. I, it was a big Manila folder, and I gave the mail, and I opened it up, and there's like there's every team, all 26 teams at the time, I think it was, and oh my god, I had so much fun with Stratomatic. Stratomatic's a great game, and it's particularly good when you're sitting across from somebody else who knows baseball. In, you know, in real oh time. yeah, I, I know. That, I, I would play solitaire. I would. Well, I, would, I would too. Back yeah. When, sure. When Fantasy Island and Love Boat were on, and, and if I'd be watching a Yankees game or a Mets game, I would just sit there and play in hours on end. And uh, and anybody that's listening, maybe uh, Bob. Uh, Bob since Bob's got an in at Stratomatic, I, I've developed a promoters game, a strat like a Stratomatic wrestling game, where you're going to have promoters go against <laughs> each other, and everybody's going to have a territory. But well, that's that's another subject. But uh, John, John, did you have another question for Bob? <laughs> I have idea. a huge question for Bob, and I have been wondering about this for well over two and a half years. Um, when Brian Solomon had Craig Peters on his Shut Up and Wrestle podcast, which I highly recommend, Craig Peters starts talking about how. In the wrestling magazine's office, you guys would play Stratomatic baseball during the day. You would occasionally take a break, and you'd play Stratomatic. Were you in on this? No, it preceded me, believe it or not. Ah! It preceded me. And now yeah. I will I, never you know, know. Steve told me this because he had heard, you know, he was part of the podcast, so he told me about that. And I said, my gosh, can you believe that? I mean, I used to play Stratomatic when I was a sports editor, but... Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, my first job at my small newspaper, we used to, you know, during downtime, me and a guy named Bob Dial would play um, Stratomatic in, in the sports department. So, um, no, I, I find that fascinating even now. I, I don't think Craig put two and two together. I saw Craig recently for the first time in like 20 years. And he never mentioned that. I'm going to have to pick his brain on this. See, you're telling me stuff I don't know. <laughs> well, the, the big thing I want is, A, those guys have a draft or did they just... Did they have a draft, or did they just, you know, okay, you're the Mets, I'm the Phillies, and B, did they keep statistics as the year went on? I bet, but anyway. I, I bet, they, I bet it was just one-upmanship, really. I bet it was just game by game. Or what we refer to with Stratomatic as exhibition games, right? They weren't, you know, they weren't part of a complete <laughs> season. So uh, when you play just for one outcome, it's a, quote, exhibition game. So ah, um, I see. Let's say you got the Mets, you got the Yankees, and I love the Mets, I hate the Yankees, and vice versa on the other side of the table. That's when that stuff is fun. And given their workload, I don't think they could keep stats. That would have been, that would have been too much. They weren't as much of a nerd as I was playing Stratomatic uh, Solitaire back in the day. Oh, you too. Yeah. Oh, God, definitely. Wow. And we talked about, you know, who is old school. I had my first fantasy baseball draft 
the day after the first WrestleMania, the Monday after that Sunday, wow. and people didn't know what it was. I randomly bought a book. It you know talked about what fantasy baseball was. I had never heard of it before, and I managed to get together a five-member league uh, by giving these guys this book. And you know the book explained what it was. And yeah, we played a bunch of seasons with just the American League East only. So. That we <laughs> went deep into the rosters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the fun stuff right there. That's the way to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It's like, you know, I have to admit this. You know, even though I work for the company now, there's every so often it's a TV stinks, right? I, I don't have any music thoughts in my head. I'll come into the kitchen and take my green box and open it, and I'll play a solitaire game of Stratomatic every so often. Oh, cool. Because I think it's important for me to do that since I work for the company. Just remember what it's like to play. You know, remember all the rules, remember all that stuff, and make sure that you're well-versed in the game. And you know what? There, Like I say, there's nothing like sitting across from a table with another baseball fan. I'm going to beat you. Oh, yeah, well, I'm going to beat you. And it's a lot of fun and a lot of laughs. And it is an incredible – Hal Richmond is the creator, and an, he's a genius because he, cr- he created the most – statistically accurate game you could ever hope to find. If you play Super Advanced Stratomatic, that's baseball, you know? Rainouts, uh, ballpark effects, and, uh, you know, balks, balks and wild pitches, and, you know, everything amplified. It's he's incredible. Do they have Morgana? Do they have Morgana around in the field? Uh, not quite. No. <laughs> not quite. I, I mean, I just you know when you think about the technology we had back in the seventies and even the sixties, and these guys putting together that accurate a a dice based game where you got you know these accurate results over six hundred at bats. I mean, it's it's all very impressive. And I mean, I'm not even going to get into the conversation I had with someone who was telling me that I was doing it all wrong with a 20-sided die, and why it was important to use the cards that oh, were numbered that one is through twenty. Definitely not true. <laughs> that no. Even if you look at it from a numbers perspective, your 20-sided die is going to be true every time—a true random number. Whereas, if you're slipping numbers into a deck. It's 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 by its very virtue it's not as accurate. It's it's not as random. You see what I'm saying? Because if you have a long game and you go to that that split deck twenty times, you're gonna re- replay that those numbers later in the game. Right. You have an op- right. opportunity not to do that at all with the twenty sided die. Now, his argument, not my argument, I was happy with the twenty sided die because it was easy, right? Right. That there were certain numbers in that deck that how do I put it, that you wanted all 20 numbers to come up, 1 through 20, because the lower the, the number or something like that, like the different outcome, mm-hmm. and thus you had a more statistical... You, you had all of the outcomes, is what his argument was. And here's the nerd road I said I wasn't going <laughs> to go down, but I stuck with the 20-sided die. Smart man. Because you were you're getting, you're getting a truer, more realistic result each time. And like like you say, you wanted those low numbers because if you're waiting for a guy to jack a three run homer, you want one through sixteen or one through twelve or so, you know what I'm saying. Even the sluggers, you want you wanted the low numbers. So, 
Um, I think that was the better way to go. I really do. Yeah, that was kind of his argument. Yeah, that the higher numbers would balance out the lower lower numbers, and you'd get a a more accurate uh, historical result. Result, Bob. I I've had so much fun doing this with you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I never dreamed we'd talk about Stratomatic, but I listen. If I can blow some smoke at you guys. Uh, I was with John Rizzi's podcast for a year, left that show and started my own at the beginning of last year, just about one year ago now. And I'll tell you what, I, in order for me to do a podcast right, I listened to a lot of other wrestling podcasts. And I want, I want you to say, you can't do a better nostalgia job than you guys are doing right here. And I, I want to commend you for it. It is one of the easily one of the best podcasts out there. Brian Last knows what he's doing. Arcadian Vanguard does not put out a bad show. And this is one of his absolute best. So... I, I, I bow now to you guys. You're doing as good a job as humanly possible. And I really, I am honored to be on this program. I really am. I am glad you said that for a multitude of reasons, because I almost let you go without having you plug your podcast. Please tell our listeners about your podcast, Bob. All right. It is called the Outdated Wrestling Hour, because it's outdated just like I am. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that was my staff announcer you heard right there. <laughs> and um, I, I don't know if you've heard it, John, but... Um, I have. It's a nostalgia podcast where we're looking at, at, at things positively as opposed to digging for dirt. It's more about the feeling of the memories we had growing up, like you and I have talked about, about being a kid and buying the wrestling magazines and about going to your first cards and, and things like that. We get into the new stuff on occasion, but most of it is nostalgia and we have, um, you know, I've got a couple of wrestling guests coming up. We have other wrestling journalists, other podcasters. The success of the thing has, has floored me. It, because, it, like I said, when I, when I did John's podcast, I found out people remember me from the old days. So I said, why not parlay that into my own thing? And it has exceeded my expectations tenfold. We're doing great. And we'll go on until, like, you know, until I get uh, the Bobergamus or something and I can't, you know, or my back goes out or something like that. I'm, I'm going to just keep <laughs> Your podcasting. Your snaps. I told you like 30 years ago I wanted to be a radio guy. I finally am, if you look at it that way, you know. So <laughs> I'm having a good way a blast. to look at it. And you can find it just like with uh, Stick to Wrestling. You can find it wherever podcasts are out, every app, or even on YouTube. So uh, thank you for letting me say that. And his show drops just like ours on Friday too, by the way. Oh, your competition, you bums. What, what in the world? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> All right, guys. Once again, this has been just an excellent hour. I've had so much fun. Uh, Steve, thank you for helping us put all this together today. No, it's just it's an honor to have Bob Smith on. And, and for those that don't know, uh, it looks like uh, uh, John and I might be making a cameo appearance on uh, Bob's show in the near future. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, definitely uh, check out uh, Bob's great podcast. And thank you, Bob, for joining us for this nice evening of wrestling talk. Bob, thank you. This has been a really good episode. I cannot wait. We have a uh, Steve. You're being you're, you're bearing your lead. But we have a very special topic we're going to bring up, and I think it's going to be awesome. And you came up with this, Steve. So, and, and I did John, not know I that. I don't know if you know this. Steve came up with this. So, yes. So this is going to be one of our greatest shows. That's right. Yeah. So so Bob had this great idea. Or well, you know, he came he came up with the uh, you know with the assistance of Stu Sachs, the PWI 500. So I had an idea. Let's do a 
PWI 100 of the 1970s, and uh, Bob and I were, you know, throwing out some ideas together, and then uh, we we decided to get Mr. McAdam involved. So I think it's going to be a really special episode. I'm going to have some fun homework to do. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and Bob, you know, once again, thank you. Excellent episode, and we can't wait to have you back. I'll take you up on that because this is this. I will tell you, this appearance is one of my high water marks since I started podcasting, and I mean that sincerely. This is an awesome show, and trust me, I'm hyping this one because uh, great to hear. I had a blast too, guys. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm 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 proud of what we've done here. I remember when we first started, maybe ten episodes into it, and I asked Brian last, you know, how's it doing? And Brian's like, well, the ratings are respectable. If you consider, and I'm like, oh my god, I'm bombing. And now I look at the Apple like top wrestling podcast, and this podcast is near the top of comparable podcasts. And when I say near the top, more like at the top. Like, no, I can't compete with Steve Austin, Arn Anderson, Jim Ross, but you know, just guys talking wrestling every week this one's e- is either number one or pretty close so thank you everyone i want to thank brian last again for for giving us this forum i want to thank lou kippelman for all the great work he does not just producing the show but making the show come together lou thank you and of course thank you all for listening we'll be back next week and this has been a a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network This concludes our podcast day.